Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, March 1st, we are studying Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. As Jesus welcomed the little children to come to him, he provides a picture of how he welcomes all who come to him in such total dependence upon his mercy. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Steve Andrews. Pastor Andrews serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks. Honored to be with you again to study God's Word. So we get started this morning, Pastor Andrews. Let's talk context. What do we need to know about the gospel as a whole and the immediate context that will help us with these verses in Mark 10 today? Well, our context for the gospel as a whole I think church tradition kind of has its thoughts here on, on the book of Mark, typically that he's probably writing to the Romans, things like that. And and so we're we're going through this and we get to go through this in our, our church together. If you're on the three-year lectionary series, you're working your way through Mark's Mark's gospel. So we're doing that together at our church here at St. Matthew and and enjoying that walkthrough. Although we really haven't. I guess we haven't done a whole lot with Mark just yet. We don't really get into it until the season of Pentecost together. But we're, we've are we made quite a move through in terms of the narrative. Um, it's not too long in the gospel until you get to Holy Week. So Jesus has been and doing a lot of his miracles, a lot of his healings, and, and the things that you're going to see him do. Um, and, and this enters into really a this chapter, a lengthy section of teaching at least in the context of Mark's gospel. Mark doesn't have as many long teaching sections as Matthew does. That's right. Mark has has moved really quickly to get us to this point. The first eight chapters particularly were breakneck speed, Mark going through various miracles of Jesus, some teaching here and there, but certainly not as much as Matthew or Luke will give us. And beginning at the end of chapter 8, and now continuing in the section where we are, we're in a bit of a transition period, which, as you said, is is a lot of teaching of Jesus to his disciples on the nature of their discipleship. We've seen them try a few times and fall a bit flat, and we're going to see that again today in this text in Mark chapter 10. And of course, leading up, as you said, to Holy Week, which we're getting very close to where St. Mark records that beginning in chapter 11, Jesus will enter into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And Mark is building to that. That really is the the main point of his gospel is to get you there to Holy Week, to Jesus' crucifixion, where Jesus will be confessed as the Son of God by the centurion. And so we're in that time of transition here in Mark chapter 10, watching with the disciples, learning with the disciples on the nature of what it means to follow Jesus on the nature of what it means to be a disciple. And in today's text, what does it mean to be in the kingdom of God, to receive the kingdom of God? And it's going to be a familiar text, I think. We, we hear this text regularly in the, in the life of the church, and we'll talk about that. As you said, if you're on the three-year lectionary, 
this is the year that you will hear from Mark extensively, particularly in the season after Pentecost. We heard some during those days of Epiphany. We're going to hear a lot more once we get after Pentecost. And and here we are in chapter 10. I'll go ahead and read the text for us. This is Mark 10, beginning at verse 13. And they were bringing children to him, to Jesus, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. That is our text for today. Mark 10 verses 13 to 16. So Pastor Andrews, just to make sure we're, we got the players straight here in our text, they were bringing children to him. The him there is Jesus. Who's the, who's the they that's bringing children to Jesus? Well, Mark doesn't necessarily specify it clearly for us, at least. I mean, we've got at present in the, the larger context here, we've got a crowd that's gathered together. So if you go back to the top of the chapter, Uh, Verse 1, he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. So, you know, the Pharisees even uh, pop up here in verse 2. So it could be those very crowds uh, that have gathered. They've they've entered into a house, so there's a bit of a more private context, but somebody's still bringing kids to him, so... The crowds seem likely it could be a more specific reference to to parents, especially as he's rebuked. They're rebuked here by the disciples, but yeah, it's it's not a hundred percent clear. Well, and I think I mean the crowds would make sense. We know that Jesus has been teaching back in verse one, as you said, that crowds have gathered to him. He's teaching. There's been this bit of a, an aside where the the Pharisees, well, I don't know if that's an aside. The Pharisees come, that's a bit of a, a main event, actually, where there's this dispute. They're trying to test him about marriage and divorce. Jesus has gone privately into the house to instruct them further. I don't think that's a, a bad picture to have in your mind. Jesus in the house with his disciples, he's taught them. But as we've seen throughout the Gospel of Mark, anytime Jesus goes away privately for a time, the crowds find him again and they start bringing people to Jesus. This is something that we've seen throughout the gospel of Mark is that people bring others who are in need to Jesus. And the ones that come to my mind as the most obvious are people who are in great need. So in Mark chapter two, you have those four friends who bring the paralytic to Jesus and very famously lower that man through the roof in the house. Yeah. The which house I think is so crowded, they can't get to him. So they, they rip a hole in the roof. That's right. And, and that, that text particularly comes to my mind in this one, given the setting in verse 10 that Jesus has just been in the house. It's, I mean, just to imagine Jesus here in the house with his disciples and people crowding around trying to get their children to him, that one comes to my mind as a very, perhaps a similar scene that we should have in our minds. There's been other people who have brought their friends to Jesus as well. In Mark 7, it was the man who was deaf and mute. In Mark 8, there was a man who was blind. All bringing people to Jesus, and in particular those last two, Mark 7 and 8, for him to touch 
them. This has been a theme in Mark is that Jesus will touch people. Pastor Andrews, help us to remember why is that such an important thing that Jesus would touch people? Well, people have recognized that this touch of Jesus is a gift, that his his very touch actually does something. It could be something noticeable like a healing. It could be even what these people are seeking. Uh, they're seeking that he would touch them and and give, give a blessing to them. Um, so, yeah, as you're talking about looking at the rest of the gospel and seeing some of the various moments um, where Jesus has touched people and has brought about that healing to them, um, it's a gift. Right. And I think, you know, just having those accounts from previously in the gospel in our minds for this one is helpful to think about the things that people sought from Jesus and that they received from Jesus. So again, to go back to the Mark 2 text as an example, there you have those four friends who lower their paralytic friend in front of Jesus. And the very first thing that he does is he forgives that man's sins. And then he he makes that man able to walk, which I, I think is, at least I, I want to have that one in the back of my mind as we read this one. When we think about what is Jesus going to do for this, for these children who come to him, who's going to take them in his arms, he's going to bless them, lay his hands on them, which I guess maybe the, the point I want to make is that it's more than a nice, warm feeling stained glass window picture that we're going to get here. You know, I mean, I don't know if you're, we have some stained glass windows in our, in our sanctuary, Pastor Andrews, and, and one of them is of Jesus you know, taking children in his arms. And, and that's a great picture but it's, it's more than a, like a fuzzy moment, Kodak moment type of thing. But Jesus is actually going to give these children something. Just as in other cases, he touched people who came to him and he gave them the forgiveness of sins or physical healing. There was something that they actually gained, something that they desperately needed that they couldn't get from anyone other than Jesus. And, and that's why I think, you know, this is a wonderful scene and it makes a, a great piece of art. And by all means, you know, put that in your homes. But, but keep in mind, this is more than just a nice thing to see. This is Jesus actually delivering needed great gift to his people. Yeah, I mean, it's not a group hug or a, yeah. a, a sandwich hug, as my children like to do. Um, there's an importance to the blessing. If you think back, many of our children, churches were used to hearing the, the ironic benediction at the end of a service. We, we may not know it by that name, but the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with his favor, give to you his peace. Those words are from the book of Numbers and were instructed to the high priest, to Aaron, that he would speak them over God's people as a blessing that would actually put his name on them. So even though we say the Lord, as we say it in English, it's that Hebrew divine name of God, Yahweh, and God is placing that name on his people, uh, in a sense, marking them for himself, which can connect us as we think of Jesus and having having the name of God placed on us as he blesses us. And we, we do that in our church services too. And we do that in the, the act of baptism as a pastor will make the sign of the cross over, over the person's forehead and over their heart marking them as one who's been redeemed by Christ the crucified. Uh, so that, yeah, this idea of blessing, there's there's something to it. It's, it's this true gift that God gives. 
Yeah, I, I like the the connection you make to the benediction that we will use at the end of our divine service, the ironic benediction, as you said, that that this is something happening, God's name being placed upon us. And that, I think, is a, a good connection to make to this text. Now, that's what's happening, that these people, the crowds, bringing their children to Jesus, he's going to touch them. But now the disciples rebuke them. So, Again, who who are the disciples rebuking? Are they mad at the little children or are they mad at the parents? And then more importantly than that, why? What's what's their problem? Yeah. I, and just like it was a little fuzzy, I think it's clearer at the beginning who the they are in the verse than it is who the them is. Um, that the disciples are rebuking them could be a direct reference to the children uh, that are sitting with Jesus. It could be a reference to their parents for even thinking this was a good idea or to the crowd at large. Uh, text doesn't really seem to specify that, at least not clearly enough with a reference for us. So we could look at it uh, perhaps maybe as all of them, the disciples just befuddled at why anyone would think this was a good idea. And really what that's going to get us to in the, the larger picture, which I think this this whole chapter of Mark 10 does a really good job at, is painting for us a picture of just what it is the disciples actually expect of Jesus. When they think of a Messiah, when they think of the one God has sent to save them, what are they expecting? What do they, what do they want the Messiah to do for them? And that's going to get us into the idea of really the, the old Jewish understanding of an earthly kingdom that their Messiah would come, that he would be a military champion. He would overthrow the Roman empire for them and put Israel back on top of the world. If that's your view of the Messiah, it can be understandable why the disciples are, are angered here. Little kids, they have nothing to offer a rebellion. Uh, they're just taking up the master's time. He doesn't have, have the time to waste. We've got more work that needs to be done. Right. The the disciples throughout the Gospel of Mark, you can tell, have these unrealistic or uh, just wrong expectations of who Jesus is and what he's going to do. And particularly in this section, I think the, the text to always keep in our minds is that very first passion prediction that Jesus makes in Mark chapter 8, where for the first time, he plainly tells them that he's going to suffer He's going to die and he's going to rise. And right then and there, Peter takes Jesus aside to rebuke him because that's just not Peter's conception of what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. And that misconception of Jesus' role as Christ, what it means for him to be Christ, really you see that play out in various ways throughout the gospel and particularly in this section, as you said. And we're seeing it play out here when it comes to the disciples rebuking Jesus, or excuse me, rebuking the the children, rebuking the parents for bringing the children to Jesus. And, you know, I mean, when we have that, that warm, fuzzy picture in our minds of Jesus welcoming children, on the one hand, it's like, well, you know, gosh, come on, guys, we have hearts of stone or something like that. This is really nice of Jesus. Let him be. But on the other hand, like, like you said, when your expectation of Jesus is something along the lines of, a military commander, something on the lines of an earthly kingdom, as nice as children are, I mean, 
what what good are they going to do? What there's there's a reason that when oh the prophet Isaiah talks about a little child shall lead them, where we kind of scratch our heads like say what a little child's going to lead them? Or you get those accounts in in Kings uh, Josiah comes to mind right away who comes to the throne as an eight year old and you're thinking how in the world is an eight year old going to rule? I mean that's that's kind of the the picture here. Like they're they're thinking earthly king. They're thinking dealing with the mighty and the powerful from an earthly perspective. And children, while they're they're nice, I mean, children just don't have good ideas when it comes to those things. And they they often get in the way. That's not their place. And these are the things that are are running through the disciples' minds, I think. It, as as you see them rebuking the children rebuking the parents, trying to prevent this situation from happening. Uh, one thing, as, as you're talking, Pastor Andrews, that I think it, it might be worth our time to, to consider, you know, this isn't what the disciples think Jesus should be doing. It's not what they think he should be using his time to do. I, I think that this is, this is something that we would do well to consider ourselves today. You know, what what is Jesus' gift of time to be used for, for us still? What, I mean, and maybe you've, you've had this, you know, uh, where someone will call you, Pastor Andrews, and they start by saying this, Pastor Andrews, I don't mean to take up your time, but, and then they, they go on to, to list the request. And, and, and I mean, this happens to me too. I think it happens to every pastor. And I appreciate the sentiment, but at the same time, I always try to tell people, this is why God gave me time <laughs> is, is to help you, is to give you the word of God. And, and so think about Jesus. Why did God send him? It was to do this very thing. But the, the disciples, it just, doesn't, it just doesn't enter into their minds that this is a part of what Jesus is, is here to do. I've said quite a bit, Pastor Andrews, just some feedback. I mean, like, what is Jesus time for? What are our misconceptions still today when we think of, you know, our use of time as Christians and we go to our pastor and the church and things like that? Yeah, I mean, that phrase that you mentioned, <laughs> I hear that plenty. I don't want to take up any of your time, Pastor, or, or you know, when you're done with it, they thank you for your time. Um, it, as a pastor, it's quite literally our vocation. It's it's why we're here. It's why you've hired us into your congregation. It's why you have an office of pastor is so that we can provide you um, with with spiritual care, whether that's the word and sacrament ministry that happens um, and, and worship together, if it's Bible study that's going on during the week, if it's a conflict that's happened in your home and you just need to talk about it, if it's that, that sin that you've committed that's been nagging at you uh, all week or, or for months and, and you just need to sit down and, and you need to confess it, you need to hear those beautiful words of Christ that your sins have been forgiven, uh, or if you just have a random question, um, it's what we're here for. And, and so it's not taking up my time. Um, it's, it's why you've asked me to come and serve you here in this place. And yeah, so we hear that a lot. Uh, Jesus, again, uh, the disciples just don't understand why Jesus is there. Um, and that, I think that started way back in chapter one, didn't it? Wasn't it chapter one, Jesus is, looking to find a, a time of privacy because the crowds yeah. have already gathered against him, um, not against him, but upon, upon him, around him. 
and he he finds a time before the sun has even come up in the morning. He gets away, and then finally Peter finds him and says, the crowds have been looking everywhere for you. And, and Jesus responds by saying uh, something along the lines that they, uh, they must now go and, and preach the gospel in other villages because that's why he's come. Hmm. Um, Jesus has come not to be the guy they think. He's come to, to be the savior of the entire world. And so whether it's having somebody come to him for a blessing or having somebody come to him who needs the gift of healing or somebody coming to him who just just needs to be heard. I mean, that fits to us today too, doesn't it? The idea of prayer that the Lord has asked us, he's, he's told us, instructed us to just take our prayer our cares, our concerns, our worries, and, and, and give them to him. Yeah. I think that the, the theme of these, you know, in seemingly insignificant people either coming to Jesus or being brought to Jesus, it fits very nicely as you were talking about, you know, people just needing to be heard. One example that comes to mind from Mark's gospel is the woman with the issue of blood in Mark chapter five, who reaches out and touches Jesus garment and receives healing. She trusted that Jesus was going to do something for her. And, and in fact, he did. I mean, and there's, there's a woman, you know, think of, of that whole scene there with Jairus's daughter being ill at the beginning and then dying in the meantime, while Jesus pauses to find out about this woman and to listen to her and to hear her prayer and to, to bless her faith. You know, I mean, goodness, you put yourself in, in the shoes of Jairus there. Like, well, Jesus, why'd you wait? <laughs> you know, and, and like, was was this that important? And the answer is is yes, it was that important. And and Jesus, by the way, heals Jairus' daughter, raises her from the dead, in fact. And, and I think, you know, perhaps a similar thing here that Jesus, is it that important that you touch these children? You know, they, they don't seem that, then why is this such a big deal, Jesus? You've got, you've got more important things to do. And yet, Jesus, this is exactly what he's here to do. This is the important thing that he's here to do is to welcome even these children into his kingdom in the same way that, as you said, back in chapter one, I think that's a great, great connection that back in chapter one, the disciples are wondering, you know, Jesus, what are you doing here in the wilderness? People, you're popular. Let's build on this seems to be the, the mindset that they have. And Jesus says, no, we, I'm here to go to these other towns and to preach to them. And, and here, you know, Jesus, he, he takes the time for these little children, insignificant in the eyes of the disciples, insignificant in the eyes of the world, but incredibly significant to Jesus. And, and just to, to let that, that priority of Jesus to reorder our own priorities and to, to let him define what, is, what actually is important for us and what's important for his time. It's, it's not a small thing. To, to go to church and to hear the word of God. That's, that's what Jesus is there to do, is to give you the word of God. I mean, I, it's just such a, it, it totally, it reorients what we, what we think is important. These, these things that in the eyes of the world, they look so insignificant. And yet Jesus here, man, he's, he's welcoming these children and, and to let him be the one to define what's important rather than to come to him with our own preconceived notions which the disciples were doing here, which we still do today. That's, I think that's one of the big takeaways for, for me from this text. Uh, that's a huge point. I mean, we all come to 
whether we're, we're coming into the faith as an adult, in which case we've got an entire worldview already built um, that has to be shattered, um, or if we're coming into it as just a small child, um, the worldview that we learn from the world around us as we're growing up is still one that we come to we come to God's word and over and over again, he has to re-instruct us. He has to point us back to what is the purpose of this life? Why are we here? What are we up to? Um, and Jesus does that a lot in this, this chapter. I mean, in essence, I think you could say in five different spots, he, he takes the, the disciples worldview and he completely shatters it or, or turns it upside down, whichever imagery you'd prefer to use. And, and gives them a new way to look at his kingdom. Yeah, Jesus is is constantly doing this to his disciples, and and it is particularly true here in in Mark chapter ten, where where he he takes their expectations, and he he just he reverses them entirely. And we're gonna we're gonna come to that I think on the other side of the break. Before we go to that break, just real quickly here, Pastor Andrews, I mean I I love the disciples. God bless them. And, and it's, it's nice. I, I've mentioned this previously. It's nice when they don't get it because it, it encourages me for when I don't get it to see the Lord's patience with them. And, and here particularly, just remember back in Mark chapter nine, Jesus has already used a child as an example to them. In, in Mark nine thirty six, Jesus actually took a child and put that child in the midst of his disciples and told them about receiving a child in his name. And, and and that was less than a chapter ago, and here they are rebuking people and children for coming to Jesus. Oh, you just kind of want to do the the facepalm emoji, you know. <laughs> uh, and so so, but but God bless the disciples because when they don't get it, the Lord remains patient. He continues to teach them, just as He remains patient and continues to teach you and me still today when we don't get it. And we're gonna pick up more of that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, looking at Mark chapter 10 with Pastor Steve Andrews. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, March 1st. We're looking at Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. We have Pastor Steve Andrews with us. He serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, prior to the break, we were talking about verse 13, how Jesus reorients the disciples' priorities. And you were saying that this really fits into this section of Mark, that we see Jesus doing this throughout this chapter. So how do how do we see Jesus doing that? How does this text fall into that series of texts where Jesus is reorienting his disciples' perspectives in the kingdom of God? So again, we've got the, we start with the idea of what is it that the disciples believe that the kingdom of God is? What is it that they think it looks like? And they're not thinking outside of the worldly terms. I mean, like 
as Christians, in hindsight, we have those beautiful texts, like as Jesus is brought before Pilate and he says, my kingdom is not of this world. Okay, we know that. We still struggle to understand it. But the disciples don't have something like that. And so as they're, they're thinking of kingdoms and they're hearing Jesus say that his kingdom is at hand or his kingdom has come near, however you want to translate the Greek on those, and they're thinking of an earthly kingdom. They're, they're thinking of Christ, their anointed one, their, their Messiah, being that conqueror who puts them back in charge through battle, through bloodshed, through whatever it takes to overcome the enemies. And, and that's why the whole taxes thing where Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's is, is such a, a dilemma. Uh, that's why it's a trick question. At least the Pharisees thought that it was when they, when they use that against them, because the people are expecting that. If Jesus is here to bring in this new kingdom, why on earth do we need to pay taxes to Caesar? And, and so we see this not of the disciples only, but they're part of that. They're part of this larger group of the Jewish people, and that's the, that's just their mindset. And so we see that throughout this chapter as it flows through. Um, the teaching on divorce at the beginning of the chapter sort of fits um, in terms of that overall narrative. It's a little less so. It's That one's more Jesus just shattering their worldview and turning it over, turning it upside down, teaching them not to live like the world lives uh, and the disciples are, you know, they're amazed by it. They, they don't understand it. And so he gives them, really, and he says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And he just leaves it. Mm-hmm. And that's a hard statement. And the church at that time wasn't living that way. I think you could argue the church at this time isn't living that way. And the teaching of Jesus is just... You know, the world does what the world does, but my kingdom is not like that. Don't live like the world lives. And then we get, I think the next four sections of the chapter get even more specific um, in terms of showing us what the disciples themselves anticipate the kingdom to be. The divorce one doesn't really do that. It's still Jesus teaching it, but you get it more specifically as you move forward. So as as we were starting to mention earlier, children don't bring value to the empire, or at least not in the revolutionary stage. A child is not going to be helpful. A five-year-old kid, they can't fight. They can't, um, they just, they're not going to help us conquer Rome. So don't waste Jesus' time. And yet Jesus responds, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And we're going to talk about that more here in just a little bit. But then you get the next account, uh, and a rich young man comes before Jesus. And now now the disciples are on board, right? The rich man has something that offers value to the kingdom. I mean, he well, he's, he's young. He's uh, assumedly, he's a fightable age. So he could battle alongside the 12 disciples. This could be good, another soldier for us. Or, you know, his wealth. When you're trying to set up a new empire, having a lot of money at your disposal is a good thing. It can buy supplies. At the very least, you could tax this guy for a long time to come, but he might be willing to give even more than what you're asking him in taxes if he thinks it's a good cause. So, you know, they see this guy as having so much to offer for this new kingdom of theirs, 
And what does Jesus say to him? You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. So the thing the disciples thought that guy had that was a value for their kingdom, Jesus tells them to get rid of it all and then follow him. And that's, that's incredible. And then he tells the disciples after the young man has walked away because he can't do it and he's sorrowful, he looks to the disciples, he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are just, for lack of a better word, stupefied. You know, they, they just, they can't fathom this. Um, and they thought, surely the rich person can enter the kingdom of God. And so that's something you'll get to unpack in the next couple of days and, so then we get the next section as uh, Jesus starts to teach, has the opportunity to teach what it means to be great in his kingdom because you've got James and John who are already part of the inner circle. Uh, you know, I don't know that I could say how they got there, but Peter, James, and John seem to be set apart. And so here we have James and John, and they're asking that they can sit at Jesus' right and his left when he comes into his kingdom. And I think in hindsight, we like to try and think that they're, you know, put a positive construction on that and say they're talking about the heavenly throne room. Um, but that's not what they have in mind here. They're thinking of Jesus, again, overthrowing the Romans. And so when he sets up his throne room, whether it's in the temple or it's in, you know, wherever his kingdom is going to be capitaled, Jesus, let us sit at your right and your left hand. Let us sit in those places of high power and authority. Let us be your right and your left. They want that position of honor in his new, newly established kingdom. And so then he goes into this, <laughs> I mean, this, this completely different thing. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So again, just shattering. It's it's completely the opposite of what they would anticipate and expect. And then the last one in the chapter is the blind man. And so you you have a blind man calling out to Jesus. And now it's not the disciples. Now it's the crowds that are trying to, to silence him and to, to hush him, you know, they have the same mindset about what this kingdom of God is going to be and what Jesus as their Messiah is going to do. So this guy's, he's of no use to us. He can't partake in the revolution. He's blind. That 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 leaves him without any cause for us. And so they, they're trying to prevent him from coming to Jesus, just as the disciples in this section are trying to prevent the children. You know, why do we want this guy around? And as he starts, as he keeps screaming, just, you know, basically telling him, shut up and go away. And, and what does Jesus do? Jesus stops. He takes the time. He calls the man to come to him. And he heals him. And he says, your faith has made you well. And so Jesus throughout this chapter is showing us that his kingdom looks drastically different than any kingdom in this world ever has. And that his disciples are still thinking in the ways of this, this world and of its kingdoms. And he's, he's trying to help break them of that. You know, if you 
keep reading then in chapter 10, the very next thing that happens is Jesus enters into Jerusalem, which is a, an important turning point in Mark's gospel there. You know, you really get to the, that's the beginning of the end for Mark is chapter 11, where you get the triumphant entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And yet, you know, we use that word triumphant entry. And yet what's Jesus doing? He's riding on a donkey. I mean, here's, here's another example of turning the disciples expectations over in terms of what it means for him to bring the kingdom of God. And I, I think then where where we really always have to go back to is that is that section that's in the middle there in chapter 10, which is the third time that Jesus predicts his upcoming suffering, death, and resurrection. That the reason that Jesus' kingdom, the way that he reigns, is so upside down in all of these ways that he's showing his disciples is precisely because of the way that he brings it. The way that he he does reign as king, not in what we think is power and glory, but what is his true power and glory is by going to the cross, by suffering and dying for our sakes. And, and that foundational event of Jesus reigning as king, you know, it, it casts the shadow over the, the rest of the life in the kingdom so that that our lives in his kingdom are are modeled after what he has done. And, and that means, you know, for this text particularly, it means that who who is it that are welcomed? The little children, the ones that, that don't have anything to offer you in battle, the ones that, that don't have any wisdom of their own to give. Those are the ones who are welcomed, which just seems backwards to us. I mean, who, if I need advice on, on how to do something, I'm not going to ask my kids. They don't, they don't have that wisdom. I love my kids but that's not who I'm going to ask for advice. If I need help on a, on a project, who am I going to ask for help? Well, I mean, you know, I'm, I'll ask my kids for help in order to teach them sometimes. But if I really need to get something done, I'm not asking my kids for help. I love them dearly, but, but they'll, they'll get in my way. And again, I, I love them dearly. I know you're, you're a father too, Pastor Andrews, mm-hmm. but, but when you need to get something done, when, when you're trying to accomplish things, it's not kids. That's not who you're going to. You're going to ask an adult, someone who's capable, someone who's dependable, someone who who will do something for you, not someone that you have to do something for. And 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 what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to let's let's use this then as a let's get into what Jesus is really getting at here. Why why is it that as Jesus says, it's to to such as children that the kingdom of God belongs? Why is it that that if you don't receive the kingdom of God like a child, you're not going to get in? And there we come to, I don't know, maybe one of the, the crucial parts of this text. Who gets to enter the kingdom of God? And what does it mean to be when Jesus says you must be like a child to enter? And I know there's there's a lot of views that are offered on what that little phrase means. Um, uh, let me share with you what I what I I think it is, and and that's the simple idea that children bring nothing to the table. Yeah, we're parents. We we get the drill. I've got my youngest is not one yet. She's not moving around yet. She brings nothing to the table. She can't provide for herself. She can't feed herself. I know if we were to leave her alone, which the Lord has tasked us to be parents, we won't. But if we were to just leave her alone, she would not survive. She couldn't survive. She she can't do anything for herself. And that's this picture of of humility 
that we are called to, to, to enter the kingdom of God. In order to get into the kingdom, you want to get in, you realize that you have nothing to offer to God. It's like Jesus, where he's teaching the disciples and he says to them, essentially, what, what, good, what good is it to a man to profit the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Even if you had the whole world, it wouldn't be enough to give in exchange for your soul. You know, we have, God owns everything. There's nothing I can give to him that is of any value to him whatsoever. It's already his. I, I own nothing. And so to come to the table with that understanding is, is the key here. The rich man thought he could enter because of his wealth. He thought he could provide for himself. The disciples think that he can provide for himself. And, and that, you know, after he's turned away, they say, how are we to be saved? And it's because it's not by our merit. It's not by our status. It's not by our wealth. If we try to get into the kingdom by those things, we will hear Jesus deny us. Um, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. So faith like a child is a humility that acknowledges that everything that we have is a gift from him, just like everything that our children have is a gift that we've provided to them. Right. Uh, to, to be like a child in this case, I think you're exactly right, is, is less to do, a lot less to do with what, what you have or a quality that belongs to you, but rather it's, it's precisely what you don't have. You're not bringing anything to the table, as you said. My, my mind goes back again to Mark chapter 2, again, where you've got that, you know, you've got people bringing someone to Jesus those four friends bring their paralytic friend to Jesus. He forgives their sins, which, which that makes the scribes really mad at Jesus. They think he's blaspheming, but in fact, he is here to forgive sins. And it's not long after that, that Jesus calls Matthew or Levi, the tax collector. And then he goes to Levi's house to eat with him and other tax collectors. And those same group of people, the scribes get upset at Jesus again. Why is he doing this? Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus speaks those wonderful words. He came to call sinners. That's who he came for. Not the not those who think they're righteous, not those who have it all together, not the ones that that have everything on their own. He came to call sinners, those who needed everything to be given to them by Jesus. And, and as you said, what what we're going to see here in in Mark chapter 10 going forward is some pictures of that. You know, the rich young man is going to provide quite the contrast to these little children who are brought to Jesus as, as one who doesn't come to Jesus like a little child. And I think you, you even see James and John as they stand up and ask Jesus for those two spots in his kingdom. And then as the rest of the disciples get upset about that, I think you see them standing as those who, who are not receiving the kingdom of God like a child. Right. But then on the positive side, Bartimaeus, the blind man, is going to come to Jesus as a beggar, and, and he simply prays, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. There's, there is that, that faith of a child, which it's, I mean, that's not, it's not that Bartimaeus you know, had something. It's that he didn't, <laughs> he, he didn't have anything and he knew that Jesus had everything. And, and so he came to Jesus as a child, even as a blind, fully grown man. That's, that's what it means. And I think, I mean, that's, that's so important for us to, 
to grasp. I mean, because this is, you know, Jesus speaks very strongly here. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. This is something we need to, we need to know, something that we need to believe so that we would receive the kingdom of God as those who have nothing but look to Jesus for everything. Uh, Pastor Andrews, before we before we leave this this part of the text, one of the the places that this text shows up in the life of the church is in the rite of holy baptism. This this text is often used. Now, what why? Well, I mean, cuz Jesus doesn't and I don't mean that, you know, like <laughs> Jesus doesn't actually baptize people here. How how do we connect this text to baptism? And, and particularly baptism of, of children and infants. I think one of the, the strongest connections on that probably is the very fact that we have brothers and sisters in Christ who don't baptize children um, that are standing there. And I don't want to, I don't think it's best construction to say that they're quite in the disciple spot here of rebuking, um, but they simply don't believe that this is a gift that Christ is giving to children. And so our liturgy makes use of it because we see Christ here inviting everyone in a sense. You know, his his kingdom is not just for the rich and the wealthy. His kingdom is not just for the adults who get it. <laughs> I mean, if if it if we had to get it, who would get in, right? Which of us would would understand? Um and so the, the inclusion of it there, I think, at least in such a simple way, is because Jesus here has invited even the children to be brought into his kingdom. As we've seen in the text, the children are in. The blind guy is in. But the crowd, the disciples, the, the rich young man, they're not in Thankfully, Jesus hasn't given up on them. Uh, he keeps working with those disciples especially, but the children are in. So let the little children come to me is, is something that we continue to, to remind ourselves of as we baptize our little ones, that this gift of the kingdom that is given in that baptism, as I mean, we talk about what baptism is and what baptism does, that the, the Lord would, would open the heavens. He'd pour out his Holy Spirit upon us creating faith in us and making us a part of his kingdom right then, right there. And that that can come to our children too. Hey, what a gift. What a wonderful, wonderful gift. Right. And that, I think that's, that's a, the focus there is that baptism is a gift of God by which he makes us disciples. And, and that's, you know, Mark 10 isn't going to be the first text that we should go to when we think about baptism. The first text we should go to when we think about baptism is where Jesus institutes it in Matthew chapter 28, when he sends his church to go and make disciples of all nations by baptizing them and by teaching them as well. And so, I mean, what, who does Jesus say is to be baptized? All nations and children are a part of that. And with that foundation is baptism as this gift by which Jesus makes disciples still today. A text like this fits perfectly that, that baptism is one of those gifts by which Jesus brings people to himself, by which he literally does touch them through the, through the water and word. There is a physical element of touch in holy baptism. And so while, no, this, this text does not actually record Jesus baptizing people or children for that matter, it fits into that larger picture that scripture gives us of what baptism is and does, such that to 
baptize our children, to bring them to Jesus in that way that he has commanded and given is, is perfectly appropriate. And this, these words are rightly used at a baptism in, in that way. And what's what's striking, uh, this at least always strikes me when, when we have a baptism, is that we read these words at the baptism of infants, and we also read these words at the baptism of adults. It, it's not that we're only baptizing babies. It's that we're baptizing all people, babies included. <laughs> and, and just to to put that to you know that we see these words read no matter who's being baptized no matter how old they are no matter how smart or rich or or whatever they are they're coming to Jesus in the same way as a sinner who has nothing to bring and is there to receive the forgiveness and the full riches of Jesus and and in that way then this text does fit beautifully into what scripture teaches about holy baptism now uh, Pastor Andrew, we've got about oh, four and a half minutes here. So I want to make sure we get to this last verse because it does come come back to some of the things we started talking about. Jesus, having spoken these words to his disciples, continues to do what he's been doing all along and what he is here to do. He takes the children in his arms. He blesses them. He lays his hands on them. Help us to to wrap this. How does this verse provide a you know fitting conclusion to the text? Well, I mean, it's the summary. I mean, it's the conclusion of, of what the original intent was, whether it was the whole crowd or if it was just a group or the parents or whoever was bringing these kids in the first place. The Lord has given them the gift that they were seeking. Uh, he's given to them what they were, were hoping for. So these families were hoping that Jesus might lay his hands on their kiddos, and he did. Um, he not only touch them. And we're not told in the text if any of these children needed a gift of healing, although we could, I think, safely assume if any of them were sick that they were healed by him. But he touches them and he blesses them. I mean, I don't know. Think of the comfort in this verse as the church today, as a Christian who knows who Jesus is and knows why he came. Imagine that you could do verse 16, that you could come and actually have Jesus embrace you in his arms. I mean, what a, what a gift. And, and I, I think we could say safely that that's the kind of thing that we're, we ourselves are looking forward to in paradise, that we would be embraced by our savior, that he would, that he would lovingly welcome us into his kingdom, just as he said here in verse 15, um, as he would welcome the, even these, these children into his kingdom. And, and even as we receive that blessing still here and now on this side of eternity through the words of Christ, as we were talking toward the beginning about the blessing that is given in the, in the words that we speak at the end of the service, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. I had a, a professor in, in seminary point out to me once that, that we don't start those words with may the Lord bless you and keep you. Or may the Lord make his face. This is, this is not a wish, but it is rather a reality that is spoken and given. The Lord is, in fact, blessing you at that moment. And as, as we said, this is, a, this is a real thing that's being given. And, and just trying to, a little bit of Old Testament background that could be in view here, this matter of blessing and laying hands on, is that the, this happens in the patriarchs. When, when Isaac blesses Jacob, he actually puts his hands on him. And later when Jacob blesses Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's two kids, he puts his hands on them. This, this bestowal of the, the family blessing and inheritance 
before a before a patriarch dies. I, I wonder if that might be in view here a little bit. That when when Jesus puts his hands on these children and he blesses them, he's saying, "You are a part of the same family that I am. You are going to receive the same inheritance that is mine as the Son of God." Jesus is giving that to to his child to these children here, and he he gives it to us still today in his word of blessing that he bestows upon us. Pastor Andrews, with just about a, a minute left, help us wrap things up. Give us the good news here from Mark chapter ten. The good news is it doesn't matter how much or how, I guess, how little we understand about about Jesus' kingdom. We do as his people thirst for for his His word and for his teaching and to, to truly know as much as we can come to know about him. But these are the disciples. These guys lived with him and walked with him and, and did so for a few years. And, and they struggled to grasp this. So as we struggle with that, um, in our lives and we struggle with our doubts and things, know that the Lord, as he cared for these disciples and continued to invite them and continue to encourage them, that he continues to invite you through his word. He continues to encourage you through his word as he shares that, that forgiveness with you, as he shares his life with you. Um, and then the overall message of this particular little section is, is calling us to our humble faith, that we wouldn't come before the Lord boastfully, that we wouldn't come before the Lord thinking that we've somehow earned it or that we can, you know, give something in exchange for it, but that this truly is a gift. As a father gives good things to his child, so the heavenly father has given good things to us as his children. He has given you life. He has given you his son, his death, his resurrection, He's given you the forgiveness of sins. He has given you everlasting life. I mean, those are those are things that we simply cannot earn. And thankfully, we don't have to. He has freely given them. And so we, as the church, we're called to be humble and simply thank the Lord for his good gifts to us. And that's all of us, as his kingdom is open to all, no matter if they're old or young, no matter if they're wealthy or poor. Pastor Steve Andrews serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri, helping us this morning with Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. Pastor Andrews, thanks for being our guest today. Honor to be with you all. God's blessings to you all. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Mark chapter 10 or any of the gospel according to St. Mark, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.